Psalms 117. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise Him, all ye people. For His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Psalms 117 is the penultimate chapter in what is called the Hallel. Hallel is the word from which we get the transliterated word hallelujah, and Hallel means praise. The Hallel was a Jewish prayer or song that Jews would sing at certain feast days, certain uh, holidays of the Jews. They were reserved for only the joyous holidays, as these songs are filled with thanks and joy. The Hallel begins in Psalms 113, and it goes through Psalm 118, all six of these psalms. And these psalms call all to praise the Lord with a focus on His redemptive work. The Hallel would have certainly been sung at the Passover and other feasts as well. It is believed by many that it is at least part of the Hallel, including the psalm that we have chosen for our text, that, that was sung by Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. So the Hillel pointed Israel back to God's redemptive work in Israel's history, mainly uh, his, his deliverance of them from Egypt by crossing over the Red Sea. But it also points us back to God's great redemptive work in our history. It points us to Christ's death and resurrection. And it is with that backdrop that we come to our text, short and sweet. And I want us to first focus on the universal command to praise found in verse 1. The universal command to praise. Look with me at verse number 1. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise Him, all ye people. Praise is an interesting thing. Praise is one of the core parts of being a human. It is a core part of human existence. Everyone praises something. From a particular restaurant, a particular meal at a particular restaurant, to a particular ball team, to a person's beauty, to a majestic landscape, we all praise. You know what people praise? They praise what they enjoy. Praise, in fact, is an expression of enjoyment. If you were to tell a friend that a particular restaurant down the road has the best steak in all the world, your friend might assume that you enjoyed the steak from that particular restaurant. And if you had told that friend that they had the best steak in all the world, but you didn't believe it, you were deceiving your friend. Perhaps you hadn't been to the restaurant, or perhaps you had, and the steak was the worst that you've had in all your life. Then you're just a lousy friend. But praise assumes enjoyment. You wouldn't praise something that you didn't enjoy unless you had some ulterior motive in your praise. Likewise, praise is the primary way that we express our enjoyment. What do you do when your ball team wins? You boast. What do you do when you read a really good book? You tell other people about that really good book. What do you do when you go on vacation and you see a wonderful landscape? You tell your friends that they ought to go, to, uh, go, to, uh, go on vacation to that same destination. You, you praise. That's what we do. That's how we express, or that's how we primarily express our satisfaction and our enjoyment. If you go to some live play, what happens at the end of that play? The actors all come out, they do their bow, and they are expected to get a standing ovation. And in fact, no matter how bored you might have been at that live play, you're probably going to stand and give an ovation, a standing ovation at that, at that play. And of course, that's flattery if you didn't, didn't enjoy it. 
But, but as you are walking out of a play, I want you to imagine that, where you go to a live play with your, uh, with your wife or your husband, and you have a, a great time or a terrible time. Um, it, it just depends on how good the play was or who picked the play, I should say. I've yet to be, yet to be, uh, I've yet to attend a good live play, but that's because I don't pick any of the live plays that we go to. Um, but, but anyway, when you leave the live play, what might you say to the people that you attended that play to play with? You might say, well, wasn't that acting so good? Wasn't that such an enjoyable play? You praise the play. And in fact, that hints at another aspect of praise. Praise usually, not always, but praise usually invites other people to enjoy what you have praised, and it invites other people to join in on the praise of that object. Uh, you share the joyful experience because you want them to partake in the joyful experience, and you want them to tell other people about that joyful experience. Now, when we come to our text, praise is the command to all people of all nations to praise the Lord. And what is the underlying assumption here? It is that all people and all nations should find their joy, their enjoyment, their satisfaction in God. That they should find their fulfillment in God. The command here is certainly not that all people everywhere should mindlessly praise the Lord. The command here is that all people must first enjoy God. That all people must first find their fulfillment in God. And then as a natural outflow of that, praise the Lord uh, because of that. So then all people are commanded to have the utmost admiration of God. And not only should they find their joy in God, but it implies here that, that all people everywhere should not only praise God, but praise only God. Uh, God is the only one in heaven, and any praise offered to Him without exclusion is rejected. It is despised. It is hated by God. And so praise of God with an idol in the corner does not accomplish the objectives of praise. It does not please God, and it does not help the one doing the praise find the fulfillment and satisfaction in God. So praise must be offered to God without any reservation. But let's draw our attention to what we find here in verse number 1, what is the primary focus of verse number 1. That is the universal nature of verse number 1, the universal call to praise the Lord. And what's interesting about this is that it's in the midst of a Jewish hymn to be sung by Jews during Jewish feasts uh, for things that God did for the, for the Jewish nation. And yet here in, verse, in chapter 117, verse number 1, we find a command to all nations, to all people, to praise the Lord. It seems out of place. It seems misplaced. Certainly this command would be found elsewhere. But it doesn't seem to be in place to be found here in the Hallel. But even in the Hallel, these six chapters, the call to all, the universal call to praise the Lord is found. In Psalm chapter, or Psalm chapter 113, we find, From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. And that is that people at all places should praise the Lord, so that the Lord is continually, literally everywhere around the world is being praised and praise is being offered to the Lord. And one of the major failures of Israel was their failure to see that God intended, them to, intended to use them 
to bring all nations to praise the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament times, it was very apparent that there was hostility uh, between the Jew and the Gentile. Uh, this is most apparent in New Testament times when we begin to see the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But this hostility between Jew and Gentile was in no smart because of the Jews. Nobody likes the condescending tone, and the Jews embodied that attitude towards the Gentiles uh, like, like nobody else. But this was not how God intended to use the Jews. Back in Genesis chapter number 1, chapter 12, the beginning of the nation of Israel, God blessed Abraham. He gave him a covenant to bless him. Uh, and one of the aspects of that covenant was that, that thou shalt be a blessing, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. The covenant that was bestowed upon Abram, that blessed covenant, was so that he and his offspring would be a blessing to all other nations. And indeed, that is why God blessed us. Uh, he, he, he was blessed to be a blessing. And by the way, that's a great way to live and to give. We are blessed so, so that we ought to be a, a blessing to, to others. And of course, primarily with Abram's covenant, the way in which God blessed the world and the way in which God was promising to bless the world was through the seed, was through the Messiah. Uh, and that is the blessing that God has given to us as Gentiles, the primary blessing, I should say. In Romans chapter number 15, Paul quotes a series of Old Testament authors, uh, and he is doing so to show that Christ is the ultimate manifestation of God's blessings upon the Gentiles. And it is there in Romans chapter 15 that Paul quotes this verse in Psalms 117 verse, 5, verse 1. It is this verse, that, or this is one of the verses that Paul quotes there to prove that Christ is the manifestation of that Abram, uh, Abrahamic covenant, that, that blessing that God promised to the, to the Gentile, Gentile nation. But while the Jews would sing this song on certain days, they rarely lived the song that they sang. The Jews should have known enough of their Old Testament to know that not only was the Messiah coming, but He would deliver not only Israel, but He would deliver the Gentile nations, that He would bless the Gentile nations. And they should have conveyed that message. They should have preached that message to the heathens uh, uh, that surrounded them. But they failed to do that. And, and their hypocrisy and their pride, not only was it a failure to preach to the Gentiles, but it actually provoked the Gentiles to blaspheme God, as Paul uh, points out in Romans chapter 2. And there's no greater illustration of this than the prophet Jonah. And Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh to preach. Uh, that, that judgment was coming, that they would be overthrown. And what did Jonah do? Not only did he not jump at the opportunity to preach, uh, uh, preach the message that God had called him to preach, but he went the other way. He went the exact opposite way of Nineveh. And why did Jonah do that? He did that because he was a racist. He did that because he was prejudiced against the Assyrians and against the Ninevites. He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want them to come to restoration in their relationship with God. Jonah would have rather been isolated from God, be separated from God, if it meant that they too were separated with God. He would rather that occurred than for them to be restored to God and he to maintain his relationship with God. And what an indictment that is on Jonah. And what an indictment it was upon the nation of Israel. That was the attitude 
of the Israelites. Instead of sharing those blessings that God had given them, they guarded them. They hid those blessings from the Gentile nations, again, provoking them to blaspheme the name of God. You know, as Christians, we can find ourselves in the same position as those Jews. You know, we've entered into a covenantal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and we have been blessed. And again, blessed to be a blessing. That is why we have been blessed, so that we can be, in turn, a blessing to others. And we have been given the greatest blessing of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest blessing, and it ought to be shared with the whole world. It has an infinite amount of supply. There is no limit to its supply, which means that we have no reason to hide it to ourselves, to hold it for our own. It should be shared with all. It should be given to all. It should be preached to, to, to all. But the temptation is quite similar to Israel. It's real easy to feel better than the world, to feel holier, right, more righteous, more superior to the world. And that's the exact feeling that the Jew would have had to those Gentile, to those Gentile pagans. But our perspective of this world ought to be framed by the but for the grace of God, there go I. And it's not that I'm better than the heathen, it's that Christ is better than the heathen. And it's that Christ can change the heathen. And so we should blind ourselves to their hostility, we should blind ourselves to their sin, and we should lovingly preach the gospel to them. But let me stop there, because the obligation to preach the gospel is not primarily out of a need to tell people. Our obligation is first to God. Our obligation is first Him, not them. And so why do we preach the gospel? Well, we preach the gospel because people everywhere are commanded to praise the Lord. Now, don't write me off just yet. Let me, let me expand on this just a, little, just a little bit. Praise, in this sense, must be done out of a heart sincere. And how does a pagan, a heathen, have a heart sincere? They must accept the gospel. They must praise God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. All other praise falls short. All other praise is rejected uh, and is despised by God. So unless they come to accept the gospel, unless they come to accept Jesus Christ, they cannot praise God. They cannot offer to God what He commands them to offer Him. And you're familiar with, I'm sure you're familiar with the series of rhetorical questions in Romans chapter number 10 that lay out the need for missionaries. Uh, how then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, we could very easily ask another rhetorical question at the beginning of that rhetorical series, and it would be, how shall they praise Him of whom they have not called? They cannot praise the Lord if they have not heard, uh, if they have not called upon the Lord. And they cannot call upon the Lord uh, unless they hear about the Lord. So we must preach about the Lord. We must preach the gospel to these people so that they can uh, praise the Lord. Before people can praise the Lord... They have to first taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is why we reach. Because the only way people can and will praise God is by first believing the gospel. If we were to submit, suggest that missions, that global missions, is, uh, that, that global missions purely for the sake of reaching people is the central theme of the church, we would be adhering to a man-centered theme. And our theme as the church is not man, we are not man-centered, we are God-centered. 
And so we worship God. Worship is our central theme. If missions was our central purpose, then when Christ returns, our purpose for existence would cease to be. But if our purpose in existence is worship, then when Christ returns, our purpose is only enhanced. We can worship Him even greater when He returns. So then worship is primary. And missions is required because worship is primary. We must be about adding more worshipers to the church because that's what God demands. That's what God commands of all people everywhere. And missions work is essentially praised because how can you how can you preach the gospel without praising Jesus Christ? Try that. Try pre- try preaching the gospel without telling people how good Jesus Christ is. It's impossible. And so missions work is essentially praise. It is essentially worship. But there's another aspect in which it's essentially worship. Because all missions work should be done out of adoration, out of admiration, out of appreciation for what the Lord has done for us. We don't reach out to the world out of obligation. We do it because we love Him. We do it because He gave Himself to, to us. So we don't serve out of duty. We serve out of delight. We serve, we, we sacrifice, we send because we want to praise the Lord. And that's one of the ways we can worship the Lord. Returning to our text, before we get back, get, before we move on to verse number two, I want to draw your attention to one other thing from verse number one. Not only, I believe, not only do we see a command to praise the Lord of all nations, but I believe we also see a prophecy that all nations and all people will indeed praise the Lord. Revelation seven nine and ten. After this, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the land, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne, and to, unto the land. When we get to that day, there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every dialect, every people group that will be gathered around the throne, and they will be praising the Lord continually. And that is the end, of, the end result of mission. It is praising the Lord. It is bringing others to praising the Lord. But further, there will not be one soul that escapes bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every person everywhere will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and they will praise the Lord. They will glorify God by doing so. So we see the universal call to praise in verse number one. We see secondly in verse number two the unfailing cause of praise. The unfailing cause of praise. Verse number two. For His merciful kindness is great toward us and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Pay attention to that first phrase. For His merciful kindness is great toward us. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful truth? God's merciful kindness, His mercy, His grace, His love. Uh, might I add the, the word abundant? His abundant grace has been extended to us. And is that, is that not all the reason that we need to praise the Lord? Has He not demonstrated all that He has needed to uh, to, 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 for us to praise Him forever. If He were to not do one more merciful act toward us, 
if He were to not extend one gracious hand to us, if He were to not give us one more blessing, we ought to praise the Lord continually forever for all that He has already done for us. And yet we know that His mercy extends forever, that He is merciful to us uh, forever. And we ought to praise Him for, for that, that as well. And this, of course, was true of the nation of Israel. In fact, it is preeminently true of the nation of Israel. It is generally believed that this psalm was born out of a return uh, from the post-exile, uh, the post-exile return from Babylon. At that point in Israel's history, surely, uh, if anybody had exhausted God's mercy, it was them. Surely, if anybody had exhausted the hand of God's grace, surely it was them. But no, it was not. God, of course, had allowed them to be carried away into captivity, but God had also prepared and made the way for the Israelites to return to the promised land. Uh, He extended once again a gracious and merciful hand to the Israelites. And by the way, God God was omniscient back then. He knew that those people, that it would be their descendants that would cry out, crucify him to the greatest gift that God ever gave. And yet, he still had mercy. He still had compassion. He still had grace. He still extended love and merciful kindness to them. And even, even though Israel has come through what it has come through, and that is that they cried out, crucify him. The greatest sin in the history of the universe, they cried out, crucify him to the darling Lamb of God. Yet even still, God has a future reserved for that nation. He is still planning to, to give them a part in His eternal and everlasting kingdom. And I ask, is it possible to exhaust His mercy? It is not. Is it, exa- is it possible to exhaust His hand of grace? It is not. His mercy is more. It is more than your sin. His grace is more. His grace is more than your mess up. And is that not enough to praise Him forever? But notice something else here in verse number 2. For His merciful kindness is great toward us. Toward us. Now again, verse number 1, the audience is clear. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise Him, all ye people. But again, it's Jews that are singing this song. So when I read verse number 2, the audience has not changed. The audience is the nations. It's all the people. They are to praise the Lord. But why are they to praise the Lord? For His merciful kindness is great toward us. Are we to understand these verses, this verse, to say that the Gentiles, the heathens, are to praise the Lord for His merciful kindness to the Jews? And that seems a little bit puzzling, does it not? The merciful kindness that we ought to be praising the Lord for is His merciful kindness to us. But here the command is to praise the Lord for His merciful kindness, as I read it, to the Israelites. And, and, and this is not uh, the first time this is found in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 32, verse number 43, Moses is concluding his words to the Israelites, and he says, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversary and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. There is nothing in that verse about his merciful kindness to the Gentiles. There is everything about his merciful kindness to the Jews, to the promised land, to the promised people. And yet the command there is to all the nations to rejoice with his people, to rejoice with Israel. Now that may not be encouraging at first glance, but let's, 
let's, let's add the next phrase to this, and I think we can get a little power where it is, in fact, encouraging to you and I. For His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Now, don't understand, I don't understand truth here to be objective truth, that abstract reality that we can build our lives upon. I understand the truth here to be truthfulness. Uh, pointing back to the previous phrase, for His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. That is, that He is truthful, that He is faithful to the merciful kindness. The promises that He made to the nation of Israel will be kept. He will be truthful to those promises that He made to the nation of Israel. So what, what is commanded here is that Gentile nation, that Gentile people praise the Lord for His merciful kindness to the nation of Israel and His truthfulness to those promises to be mercifully kind to the, na- to the nation of, uh, of Israel. Now, I want you to think about this from a Gentile perspective. Specifically, in Old Testament, let's put ourselves in Old Testament times from a Gentile perspective and, 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 and a Gentile that has decided to put their faith in the one true God, Jehovah, Jehovah God, the God of, the God of Israel. Were, were, were they, those that put their faith in God, the one true God, without hope? Certainly they were not. How come? Because they aligned themselves with the people of God. Now let me illustrate it this way. Take someone like Rahab, Rahab, for example. Rahab lived in a world where I'm sure it was constantly in flux. I'm sure Jericho's military alliances were constantly changing. The powers of the day were constantly in flux. And if she is going to claim some allegiance to some military power, some economic power, she is going to do so based on a guess. Uh, she is going to align herself with someone based on a pure guess. But then she hears one day about this, uh, this people that is, uh, that, is, that is coming into the land. And she hears that these people, that their, their God delivered them from the nation of Israel, that God swallowed up the enemies of Israel after they crossed the Red Sea. Uh, she hears about how that those people were taken care of in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And she decides to put her trust in their God, in Jehovah God. Now, to you and I, surely her faith was suspect. You and I would not look at the faith of Rahab and say that's a real robust faith. It was, it was a very childlike faith. I'm sure she was doing that for survival. But nevertheless, she put her faith in the one true God. So one of these days, a couple spies came through. They happened to visit Rahab, providentially, of course. And Rahab decides to align herself with them, with God's people. What happens after seven days of marching, and on the seventh day, of course, they marched seventh day, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Everything except Rahab's house came tumbling down. Why is that? That is because Rahab aligned herself with the people of God. And when she aligned herself with the people of God, the promises of God extended to her. In the New Testament, there's a wonderful story that is given to us in, in the Gospels that really drives this home, in my opinion. In Matthew chapter 15, there's a Canaanite woman that comes to Jesus because her daughter is vexed with a devil. And Jesus' words to her seem harsh and un- unnecessary, but they, they bring about the perspective 
that that Old Testament uh, Gentile saint would have had, and that you and I ought to have uh, leaving here this evening. Uh, she, she asked the Lord to vex her, and of course, Jesus puts her off. Uh, he, he, he says something to the effect the meat uh, of the children is not, uh, is not meat for uh, the dogs, basically calls her a Gentile dog. And her response to Jesus is, is that it is not meat to take children's bread, uh, or that's what Jesus said, it's not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Uh, now again, right there he is referring to the children as the Jews, and, 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 and the dogs are, in this case, the Canaanite woman, the Gentile dogs. But a response to Jesus is, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now there is a lady that gets it. How could an Old Testament Gentile praise the Lord for his blessings to the Jews, to that nation, to that, that, that wonderful covenant that he made with the nation of Israel? Because God's blessings always seem to slide off the table, uh, of the children's table, and they seem to find, them, find their way to the Gentile dogs. You know, the Old Testament, you don't have to look very far to see the Old Testament is littered with Gentiles that are feasting on the crumbs that have fallen from the master's table. Rahab, Jethro, the Gibeonites, Jael, Ruth, Obed-Edom, Uriah the Hittite, the widow of Zarephath, the queen of Sheba, Naaman. The, the Old Testament goes on and on with Gentiles who were blessed because of God's blessing to the nation of Israel. They were enjoying the crumbs from the master's table. So they had all the reason to praise the Lord for His merciful kindness to the nation of Israel. Now, of course, you and I live in a different time. We live in the church age. But the church age was born out of a covenant that God made primarily with the nation of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we find the contents of the new covenant, which, again, is to the nation of Israel. But you and I are partakers of the new covenant. All of the spiritual blessings that you and I enjoy are because of the new covenant. They are provided to us through the covenant. But we, as the church, the Gentile church, are still not the primary actors. The nation of Israel is. Jesus is coming once again to establish the kingdom upon this earth, and it will be the nation of Israel that Christ reigns, reigns through. So you and I, as Gentiles, are still partaking of crumbs from off the Master's table. So we join together with the Old Testament Gentile saints, and we say, praise the Lord for His merciful kindness to the Jews, because it means that He has merciful kindness to you and I. We enjoy the crumbs from the Master's table. But consider this as well, that God's truthfulness to His covenant uh, with Israel is a blessing because it shows us that His promises to us are sure. Consider a world in which God had, God had promised the nation of Israel unconditionally, unconditionally something, and he went back on the promise, for whatever reason, for their disobedience, for their rebellion, for their idolatry, you name it. God went back on his unconditional covenant because of their sin. Now, if we lived in that world, the promises that God has made to you and I would not be so sure, would they? But in fact, the promises of God, because God has kept his promise, because the truth of the Lord endureth forever, because he is truthful, because he is faithful, 
we can look at the nation of Israel, and in fact, we can look at the future of the nation of, uh, nation of Israel, and we can gain assurances from that. Because if the Lord is faithful to His promises to Israel, then surely He will be faithful to His promises to you and I. So we see here the universal call to praise, the unfailing cause of praise. And then I close with this. The unending chorus of praise there at the end of verse number 2. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. You know, there are very few things that are worse than empty praise. You know, praise is a form of advertisement, as, as I kind of alluded to it at the beginning. You know, when you praise a restaurant, you are saying you should go to that restaurant. But what happens when the person that you praise that restaurant goes to the restaurant and they find a hair in their food, or they get a cold steak? Your praise may have been well attended, your praise may have been true, but it fell short. Uh, it fell short. When you talk up your ball team, uh, how they're going to win a lot of games this year, and they they have injuries or whatever may come along as they lose, your praise falls short. When you recommend some natural landscape, natural landmark that someone should visit, and they visit on a rainy day, your praise has most likely fallen through. In those cases, again, your praise may be well-intended, and it may be true in certain circumstances, but all praise of everything will fail at some point. It doesn't matter if if it's beauty, if it's strength, if it's an advantage. It doesn't matter. What you praise in this world will fall short at some point. Except one thing, and that is God. When you praise the Lord, He never falls short. When you advertise the Lord to others, He never falls short. When you tell others to come taste and see that the Lord is good, there is never a person that comes and tastes and they, they leave, leave wanting. They leave believing that He is, that he is not good. The Lord is good. He is, and His merciful kindness is, uh, is great. His truth endureth forever. And no matter how many times you praise Him, no matter how great you talk Him up, your praise to the Lord will never fall short to other people. And so you and I are commanded to praise the Lord. We are not only to, to commanded to praise the Lord, but we are commanded to call others to praise the Lord. And that is our mission's work to bring others to a praise of the Lord. And so in closing, I challenge you this week to praise the Lord. To praise the Lord to your co-workers. To praise the Lord to your family. To praise the Lord wherever you go. In your heart, uh, through your words, through your song, praise ye the Lord.